Welcome to Kafaru Cast, everyone. I'm riding solo today. Uh, Frank is actually doing manual labor. Hope everybody is COVID free. Today is probably, this is definitely going to be one of my favorite podcasts of all time. I have got my longtime friend and uh, guide outfitter, extraordinary, uh, extraordinary and half comedian, Clay Lancaster, on the podcast. What's happening, man? Ah, not a whole lot. I'm sitting here up in Canada and they're trying to quarantine us all. And you give me a phone call and ask if I wanted to do this. And the neighbor asked me if I wanted to come over and, and help butcher chickens or do a podcast with you. It was, <laughs> I got to tell you, it was pretty close. So it's a quarantine chicken thing, you know, and I'm not sure if you know what that is, but it's when you walk into the chicken coop and anything that comes within six feet of you, you grab it and you butcher it. So it works pretty good. I like to use the same principles in Walmart, but they get upset about it. So you just do what you got to do, right? I, I know when I asked you to do this, you said you couldn't talk for an hour uh, straight, and I knew you were full of shit because I've listened to your stories that were well <laughs> over an hour long. Uh, but uh, There's no way you listen for a whole hour because you can't make it an hour without peeing. So I just, I'm not buying it. That is so very drive true. Drive the road every, every <laughs> 25 minutes. Hey, can we stop again? So... Yeah. Well, man, Clay, for, for those, there's going to be people that listen to this podcast that definitely know of you. And then there's going to be a younger generation that, you know, the lower 48 guys that, that haven't heard of you or your family. I tell you, there's not Are you very, saying I'm old. Ah, I'm saying you're definitely skilled. I, I, there, <laughs> so uh, I'll explain it. Uh, Dana, uh, Monroe, who works here at Kafaru and, and Frank, as well as my wife, I was trying to explain, uh, about you and your family. And, and, and I said, okay, do you know how people walk up to me and they're amazed at how many animals I've shot and the adventures I've got to go on? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, I may be 15% of what this guy has done. And they're like, what do you mean? I said, if I'm not mistaken, I think he's guided 250 sheep hunts. And I'm not sure if I'm telling tales on that, but I know it's close. Uh, you're, you're a little ways behind. That was a well, few years ago. There you go. How much, what are you up to now? Three something? I, I don't honestly know anymore, Aaron, to be honest with you. I, 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 when I hit 300, I kind of quit counting and that was quite a few years ago. So I don't, I don't really keep stats on them things anymore. When I was younger, it seemed like that kind of stuff was really important. So I did. And then I kind of hit 200 and started to forget thinking about it. <laughs> and by the time I hit around 300, which I really had to think a bunch about to count, and then I run out of fingers and toes and I take my socks off. So I just kind of quit worrying about that kind of stuff. I know there's, there's a lot of guys out there. Um, there's a couple guys in, in Montana, another guy in, in Wyoming that have, you know, they've equaled that 300 number. I can tell you it takes a long time and a lot of miles and it's a, it's a lot of fun along the way. But other than that, you know, you just get on with life and you don't worry about the little shit no more. So you, I mean, you're the, your family's family's family. I mean, you're, I mean, this has been something since, since birth, your dad had an operation and he worked you guys like slaves when you were a, a kid. I mean, this is all you've known. Yeah. I think we were two when my dad bought his first uh, guiding territory. So I'm 48 now. So that's 46 years being around it. I remember being a little kid. And uh, we'd go up the mountains with him by the time I was three and four years old. And I, I, this day and age, they'd probably throw somebody in jail for the stuff we were doing. By the time we were 10 years old, he had us cutting all our own trails and everything and, and uh, putting salt out in the licks and, and getting everything ready to go for the season. And I mean, it, uh, it's definitely changed a bunch. Life, life has changed a bunch, but 
we've been doing this a long, long time. And you know what? If somebody asked me and said, hey, what would you do differently? I can honestly say I wouldn't change a thing. So it's actually been a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, you were nice enough. Uh, you invited me up there to kind of snap photos and hang out with everyone in the in the NWT and, uh, you know, what, what helped you out and other stuff as well. And, and uh, not just what you learned, like you catapult, uh, not to pump your tires up too much, but the amount of shit you learn about sheep and, and moose and caribou, I mean, and other things as well, just from the scoring aspect alone is unbelievable. And I mean, there's, there's, uh, when you've done it for, for you, it's like, you know, it's like wiping your butt. It's second nature, everything. Um, I remember we were on one hunt you're telling us which the lead Ram was and we didn't listen to you. And I remember I came back with my head down. I'm like, yeah, yeah, that one horned ram was the lead ram. He like, I fucking told you. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, remember that one well, horned ram? News is, the good news is we got him. We ended up getting that ram. So, And he was every bit as old and every bit as awesome as we thought he was going to be. Was he 14? You learn all kinds of things, though. Like, Yeah, he was 14 years old when we got him. Yeah. So when you, when you didn't shoot him, he was 13. 13, yeah. yeah. I'm not going to blame you, though. I mean, the way they bunched up, if you guys would have got him, you might have got two there. So, I mean... <laughs> Well, no, never a bad thing. we we did get so. a double that day. Uh, well, you, you did get a double, but you'd had three in that one. Day, oh, so. We, I remember when we shoot because you told me you're like, look, when you shoot a double, you'll know because they all stand around. When you shoot the lead ram, yeah, yeah. Well, we shot the first one, and they did not all stand around. And the first time, I was like, <laughs> fuck, he was right. And uh, but I was on two doubles that year, and I remember you're like, you lucky son of a bitch, and it just worked out that way. It didn't have anything to do with me, but. Man, that is an amazing country up there. It's unexplainable to people. It's just so vast. That NWT area is just, it's beautiful. You know, I've hunted all over North America, all over the world now. And I'll tell you what, and I tell people about true untouched wilderness. I mean, it's pretty incredible up there. When you, when you leave somewhere and you fly and you know you're 150 to 200 miles from a light bulb, I mean, when you get dropped off, it's like, okay, we're really in the middle of nowhere here now. And, and you are, I mean, and it really wakes a guy up. I've had people actually that went completely insane just on the fear of where they were at. And one guy in particular, uh, my brother was guiding him and it was when nine 11 happened and he calls me up and he goes, Hey, this guy killed the caribou today. And they, they killed it on, um, you know, September 11th and, I'm like, everything's shut down. I'm back in base camp. I said, nobody's allowed to fly. He says, this guy wants to. He's going to pay for it. So we ended up getting a hold of this one company. They had to get a hold of Transport Canada, back and forth. They finally got permission. It cost this guy $14,000 to fly back out of the mountains on that day. And he was losing his mind. Like, literally, they were thinking of tying him up because he was losing his mind so bad. So, I mean, some people can take it. And other people, they get dropped off in them places. And it's just it's deafening to them. It just, it's like somebody dropped a big rock on them and the fear just starts to build and build and you got to talk to them and joke to them, but <laughs> it doesn't work all the time. I can only uh, imagine. I, uh, it's amazing because the amount of, um, it's hard to explain, I guess, when you're, when you're used to the, especially the lower, you know, 48, um, in a big wilderness, like the Bob Marshall is a fraction of what the area is you guys are, are, are dealing with. And I, it, Man, it, it was just hard to fathom. Well, you made fun of me because I remember that first time we yeah. landed, and you and I walked up on that hill, and I pointed and I said, "See all the mountains in that direction." You said, "Yeah." I go, 
that's in this concession. See all the mountains in that direction? Yeah, that's in this concession. See all them in that direction? And you were sitting there looking around, looking at me, and went, you're serious. And I said, I'm dead serious. This, this is all part of this. And here's the best part. There's not a road anywhere. And I think that's when I really kind of hit you and I told you that this is the middle of nowhere, even compared to Alaska. I've hunted a lot of places in Alaska. There's lots of different places I've been in Alaska that are definitely way out there. But the one difference I see is, hey, you look across that valley over there and there's a tent. Oh, there's a super cub landed over on that spot. Oh, there's 25 planes flying over top of us. When you're there, there's nobody. There's no planes. There's no people there's no tents it's just quiet and it's a it's a different feeling until anybody's been there they don't really understand it it was definitely one of the highlights of my life i i mean i enjoy being i i mean that's my more my my thing so that's the best but except for the spider bite well we'll talk about that in a minute i got bit by a black cock long (laughs) or a long cock black hobo spider i believe is what you guys named it the uh yeah that's what it was (laughs) it was there it buried itself in there I think they called that a penis injection or something. I remember you cut does. you cut that thing open, and I thought, all right, I'm not going to show any pain. I'm going to man up here. You squeeze the fuck out of that, and I remember I thought, man, I'm going to pass out, but I'm not going to show it, and it hurt. I got to tell you, I was so impressed with your ability to show no pain whatsoever. You went completely white, and I have to tell you, I mean, I, I just got to tell you, I <laughs> I've experienced few things in life I have enjoyed as much as cutting you open and squeezing on that. Very few things have brought joy to my life like that. It fucking and then hurt. The best part is just the look on your face of I am not showing any of these bastards how freaking bad this hurts. And you just sat there stone face to stone face, and I just kept squeezing. I don't think I've laughed that hard in years. So. Well, I remember. I don't know. Maybe, I went maybe you got to your... be in the mountains a long time to have that kind of personality, but that that was definitely worth it. Well, well I got people ask me about you all, all the time, and uh, they're like, what's Clay like? I'm like, he's just like what you think he'd be like. I, I said, honestly, there's a lot of similarities between – Clay and I, and I'm like, one of the reasons Clay have people, or Clay, one of the reasons some people have issues with me is I'm, I'm blunt. If you do something wrong, I'm going to tell you to yeah. do something wrong. If you do something right, I'm going to tell you to do something right. And I'm like, he's going to call you a dumb fuck if you are one. That's just life. And uh, I was like, that's one of the reasons I think it's important to surround yourself, people. Well, I've told, between you and your brother, you'll definitely keep me humble. Um, if, if you do something good, you'll be the first guy to be like, man, you guys, you fucking killed it. That was awesome. But if you do something wrong, you'd be like, are you stupid? Are you stupid? Answer yeah. me. <laughs> I, and you I prefer what? that. Though. Around those kind of outfitting camps and stuff, I always call it a shark tank, and including myself. Don't matter who you are. I can be the boss. I've had my guides. It's, it's like there's a little bit of blood in the water and the sharks show up because if you can't take it, then you're going to be in serious trouble. Oh. But, I mean – that's the way it is up there. That's you're with these guys all the time. I mean, I, I've never been in the military. I, I can assume that it's similar to that. It's kind of the mentality you have to have just to, to survive and to, to flourish in those kind of environments. Well, so I remember I mean, the pilot. I won't mention the pilot's name. Oh. It's one of the, no, I don't, I don't drink, uh, but you drank and you and harder drank enough for both of all of us. But the heart, the pilot, his, his, his girlfriend, uh, wrote him a letter to let him know that she was going out with her ex-boyfriend. And he, you want to talk about a pity party, <laughs> like borderline suicide, which there there wasn't a lot of sympathy uh, that night. So you and Harder. No, and he made the mistake of telling us. He, oh, remember? Jesus, I do. <laughs> he said, <laughs> so, he said to us, 
Well, the only problem I, I don't like, I don't care who she goes out with, but the problem I don't like about this guy is his, <laughs> he's got this long cock. Well, that's how, that was the so, night when I was recovering from the spider bite when the infection and swelling went down. Yeah. And that's how I ended up getting, his name was Johnny, and you kept calling him Johnny Longcock. And <laughs> then... Well, Harder started that one. He's smarter than I am. He comes up with them good quips like that. <laughs> Well, that's how I ended up getting bit by a, that was what it was by the long cock black hobo spider was because of Johnny <laughs> long cock. And this lasted, I mean, and this dude's like in tears and they're all drinking and, well, and harder and clay. He ends up outside in the yard on the satellite phone. He couldn't take it no more. And then the poor guy came back in. He said, she's not answering. Well, then it got even worse from there for him. Yeah, I remember you screaming at him through the tent while you were pissing of what he was doing to her that night. And I'm like, oh, this poor bastard's going to commit suicide. But Maybe we shouldn't be talking about that. <laughs> well, that <laughs> day started. Back up. I, I walked over to your tent early because I can't sleep. And I was like, man, Clay, I think I got bit by something. And you're like, nah, there's no poisonous spiders up here, which there's not. So... Remember, we kept drawing rings well, around. We found it. out there is now. <laughs> yeah, there's some poisonous. And you had said at one point, well, at first it was a joke, and then it got a little serious, and then my leg locked up, and I was getting cold sweats. And remember, we were drawing circles around it right down the time. And Yeah, that's that was the part. The black felt pan around. Where Where's all the red stuff at? So we draw a circle around that. <laughs> we sit there talking. Five minutes later, it's like, well, let's way outside the black edges now. Yeah. Well, maybe we didn't draw it right. So then we draw it. Next time we'd look back five minutes later, it's, oh, it's way bigger. Well, now it seems to be going down all the veins of your leg. I think we better do something about <laughs> well, this. I remember you well, were I like. I was going to have a baby because it's getting taller and taller. I was like, that don't look great. Oh, you were like, man, we, in all seriousness, we mean to fly your ass out of here because it's so yeah. far to get anywhere. And then. We ended up having the Johnny Longcock issue that night. And then the next morning, there was moose uh, hunters coming in. And I remember I duct taped. I didn't want to show any weakness. I didn't want to be a pussy. So I duct taped a towel around my leg when we were going through the brush for the moose. Holy shit, that hurt. <laughs> when it was whacking that. Uh, man, how big was that moose? Uh, 220? That 67 or something like that. Two, 228, I think he went. So I don't know. I don't remember him. I remember this much. I was out an inch on the call, and yeah. uh, he, did, he did give me a ration of shit over that. So uh, I mean, well, that's fair enough. I, I blew it on a moose from 600 yards by an inch, and he was he was a little upset over it, but you'll have that. I had uh, the spotter zoomed in, and from whatever it was, 600 yards away, I was having to pivot left and right to get all of his rack in the video. Uh, when I was trying to video through the spotter, but yeah. And even still, I must say, uh, your head still made that thing looks, uh, small. For those who don't know, uh, Clay's hat size is infinity. Uh, you've got a dome on you. Um, like, like no other. I remember you were up in there. I was like, Clay, scoot back. Your head's making it look small. And, uh, again, nothing is sacred in hunting uh, camp. That's kind of like the first time I met you. Everybody said, Oh, this Aaron Schneider guy, you're not going to get along with him. I didn't know who you were or what you were with or anything. I remember walking up to you in the booth and you had your head all shaved. And I looked at you and said, you know, if we put a dot in the middle of both our foreheads, we'd just look like an oblong setup. Well, you can figure it out from there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that was the start of it. I mean, we got along unbelievable after that. Everybody said we wouldn't get along. I've never been able to figure that one out. But uh, put oh, two yeah. peas in the same pod, that's what happens, I guess. 
I, I, it, Clay's great at advice as well. When I was going through, I Clay testified through my <laughs> common law divorce, and in the beginning, I was I, going down the road. Let's let's be honest, how this happened. <laughs> yeah. I was going down the road in Montana, and I get a phone call from was it the judge or the lawyer? The judge. Yeah, okay. yeah. I got to pull over on the side of the road so I don't lose service, and then I'm getting this. You swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, and I'm like, well, yeah. <laughs> and there I am sitting on the side of the road in Montana testifying for a certain person here going through a divorce. And, and the funniest part is I'm sitting there and I'm like, you're, you're not even married. Why are you going through a divorce? And I can't ask him a question or do anything. And I'm thinking, well, advance notice might have been good here, Snyder. Oh, I know. Well, I think at one point in time I said, hey, I think I'm going to need you to testify. And then I forgot to tell you when, just because that's how I yeah, roll. Yeah, like six months before that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, when this all happened... You said, just give that crazy bitch $40,000 and get her out of your hair. And I'm like, no, there's no way. Yeah, you did. I remember because it would have been the smartest advice I ever took because it ended up costing (laughs) three times that. And uh, when I had you testify, it was because you were like, hey, because she was uh, dual citizenship. And and the whole thing was, were we common law married? Did we present ourselves as married? Did I think we were? And you had said, hey why don't you just marry her and come up and guide for me and work for me? And I said, Clay, there's no way I'm ever going to marry this bitch ever. Yeah. And that-, <laughs> that was the big conversation. That's why you didn't end up guiding for me. Yeah. And then the judge asked me, are you sure you're telling the truth? And I'm like, yeah, I'm telling the truth, but I don't think anybody even believed me. No. And I, I think you even said my exact words. Cause I remember my, my lawyer was laughing. You said, uh, Aaron told me he was never going to marry this crazy bitch. And <laughs> Clay said that <laughs> on the mic. I didn't realize I wasn't supposed to say that. They kind of got upset about that. Uh, well, I, I, I think because my, you know, of course, uh, she is sitting across to the my left of me, and my, my judge or my lawyer looks down. He's like, "So is this guy your twin? Because that's the same kind of shit he had to deal <laughs> with me." <laughs> See, this is the first time I get to hear this side of the story. I'm the guy on the phone answering questions, going, "What the hell's going on here?" out of the twilight zone oh it was crazy and i lost i still lost i uh even with the testimony i bet it cost you more than 40 grand too didn't it uh yeah uh hell i paid the lawyer yeah. more than that <laughs> for a girlfriend let's <laughs> tell you what the world's coming to um yeah it was wild but that that was um a couple years ago and obviously everything's worked out fine you know since occasionally you will bring that up that i should have uh should have listened to you um just but kidding. I did tell you at the end of it all, when you were sitting there going through the whole thing, I did say the funny thing about life is time changes everything. And now look where you're at. So oh, it yeah. does work. Everybody gets weighed down and out. This is what happens. And the reason, the reason I know so much about these divorces is because guys in the hunting world are constantly getting divorced. <laughs> and I keep telling these guys, you guys got to marry the right girls. You're all marrying the wrong women all the time. If they say they're okay with hunting when you get married, or they like the idea of it, they're lying. Get it figured <laughs> out. They're totally lying to you. If they're not willing to strap on the pack and come with you, go into the mountains, spend some night out, they'll always say, oh, I like camping. Yeah, they like camping in a fifth-wheel trailer that they can blow dry their hair. But if they don't like actually getting dirty and smelling a little bad, don't marry that one. But you think guys can figure that out? Oh, no. So I get to be sitting on the side of the mountain. I can't tell you how many times I've been sitting on the side of the mountain. Now I'm going through divorce number two. Now I'm going through divorce number three. 
And I'm thinking, maybe it's you. You're just a bad picker. <laughs> like, at some point, you guys got to start using your brain here. Oh, shit. Yeah, no no kidding. Speaking of guiding, so what are some of the more well-known people um, that you've you've guided? Are we allowed to say who they are? Or? Yeah, yeah. You're not going to, you, obviously, you can't say anything <laughs> bad about them. But I, uh, I know, like, Carl Malone was one you've told me about. But I know you've. I tell you what. To this day, probably one of the funnest guys I've, I don't know if funnest is a word, but I'm going to use it, but probably one of the funnest guys I've ever hunted with. I mean, just an absolute gem of a guy to hunt with, as down to earth as they get, as real as they get. I mean, a guy started out from nothing, you know, made his mistakes in life, owes up to him, and just faces the world head on. And you think, oh yeah, he's just some kind of a, a spoiled superstar, and he's not. He's actually a really, really good guy. Really enjoyed hunting with him. I... <laughs> We got to go gopher hunting one time. <laughs> I've never seen a person get more excited about shooting gophers in my entire life. And a smile on his face. We're supposed to be hunting grizzly bears. And the next day he's like, uh, you think we could go back down to them fields and hunt some more gophers today? <laughs> We're supposed to be hunting big grizzlies. So, yeah. And then the best part is at the time that was going on, I was driving one of those Chevy trackers. It's all I could really afford. And, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with them, but they're like a really Geo small tracker version of or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So try and put him in a seat beside me. His knees were up by his ears. His head was all hunched over every day. He, he would look over at me and he would be, this is all you got. This is all you got. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I might have a pickup, but this thing's way cheaper on fuel. So that's, that's what we were driving in. Oh shit! Who who else like of uh, like crazy notoriety? Um, this year we had a certain guy come up, but I'm not. I don't know if I should say his name because he didn't want anybody to know about it. But he's just a, a very well known singer and another guy that started out from scratch and just a, a great great guy right from right from the beginning. And I, I actually learned a really neat story that he got his start from another guy that hunted with me maybe ten years ago that actually hunted with me a whole bunch, and that guy actually loaned him money. I had I did not know the story at all, and it was just neat to hear that whole um, story come full circle. But I won't say his name because he's really worried about people knowing that he hunts. I I don't know why. I would just admit to it. But everybody's got their own ideas in this world. Oh yeah, well, and you've guided um, pretty much everyone that's anyone like with uh, North American Twenty Eight. Um, it it's it's crazy because I'll run into people like that I don't know that are like, Hey, you're Aaron, you're buddies with clay. Right. And I'm like, yeah, clay Lancaster. Yeah. Why? What's up? I hunted with him back in 1996. And I'm like, huh, <laughs> shit. I just had graduated. That's cool. You know, like, cause you know, you had <laughs> done it for so long or, or, you know, different, obviously multiple different, you know, stories. Cause how old were you when you bought Nahani with, with camp? Uh, I bought my first business when I was 21. I bought into it. And then a couple years later at 23, my brother and I put the deal together um, to uh, to buy Nahanny. And I remember at the time, everybody was like, you guys can't do that. You're too young. You're never going to make it work. And if I had a dollar for every person that told me I was going to fail there, I could have probably just retired. But uh, <laughs> we ended up, we brought my uncle in. My, my uncle's younger than me. Um, people don't realize that, but Jim is actually my uncle and he's four years younger than I am. But uh, I remember he had a bunch of different things he was doing at the time, still in school and stuff. And we just, we put his name on the paper and that was the way it went. <laughs> so he was the partner, whether he wanted to be or not, but yeah, we bought it when we were 23 and we started running it when we turned 24. And it was, uh, to say it was a, an upward learning curve would be an understatement, but we'd been doing this stuff our whole life. So for us, we didn't know any different. We, 
we didn't think we were doing anything wrong or that we, we couldn't do it. So, and I think half the time in business, that's all it is, is just putting your mind to it and saying, I can do this and you just do it. And the guys that keep questioning yourself and wondering about it and trying to come up with a different scheme and everything, instead of just putting your nose down and working like crazy, they're the guys that don't seem to make it in it. But if you want to put your head down and go for it, the first, first trip Jim and I ever made up the river, we're ripping up the river in the springtime and there's all this flood water coming down. We don't even know where to drive. This river is gigantic. And I mean, it's like looking at the Missouri and all of a sudden you got driftwood like you've never seen before coming at you. And we're dodging it all the way up there, all the way up there. The boat that we had, we didn't even know it, but we put the plug in the wrong way. So we kind of stopped and right where we stopped in front of the camp, the waves caught up from the back end, hit the plug, popped it out, blew it underneath the, the floor of the boat. We run one barrel all the way up, rolled it up to the top of the banks, turned around to go back to get another barrel of fuel. And we look and our boat's about two inches from going under. So I run down there, jump in the boat. I know that it's sinking from the back end. So I put my hand over the hole. This is about 11 o'clock at night. So now I got my arm, my head's just above water. I'm holding it so it can't no more can come in. Mosquitoes are biting me. I'm swatting at them. And I'm hollering at Jim to go get a plug. So at 11 o'clock at night, he's running around this native village trying to find a plug for a boat. Well, nobody's even awake, and the people that are don't know. So finally, he sees a boat, an old boat tucked off in the trees, runs over, pops the plug out of it, runs back. We get that thing stuck in there. Then we got to bail all the water out, and then we got to roll the rest of the barrels up. And I'm thinking, wow, we might be a little out of our element here. <laughs> what were you, like 24 then, 23? Yeah, I was 24 years old. I think Jim was 20 at the time, so... But we managed it. We had, I think we had 24 barrels we had to get up there. We were taking them five at a time. So we made a bunch of trips and all this driftwood and everything got her done. And then the previous owner showed up and he was going to take me for a flight. He was supposed to hang around for 30 days, but he literally took me for about an hour flight. And from the air, a country that I didn't even know, he just started pointing out and goes, yeah, there's an airstrip there and there's an airstrip there. And I had this one to 250,000 map. And he's like, yeah, just mark them down. And I'm like, I don't even see where he's pointing at. And I'm sitting in the back of the super cup. I can't, I, he pointed down the ground and I was like, yeah, um, maybe you could land there. I don't know anything about airplanes, but I don't think I could land there. <laughs> he just kept pointing them out. So he turned out, flew back, dropped me off, said, see you later. So my pilot was sitting there and he goes, well, what did you learn? And I'm like, well, um, I got a bunch of squiggly lines on a map. So him and I, we took off, we flew out there. And we, had, we took extra fuel because we were going to fuel up and keep looking at a bunch of other things. Well, we're flying along, flying along. We see this one. It was pretty evident. Okay, that one's pretty good. And then we start getting past there, and we're looking for this other one. We look for 25, 30 minutes, and pretty soon he's like, um, yeah, I think uh, I think the fuel's too low. I was planning on landing the strip, but we can't find it. So I don't see a strip, so I could land that snow patch over there. So I said, well, that's good. Let's do that. And he goes, well, not so good. I just don't. Why not? And he goes, I could land it, but I just can't take off with you in here. That's wonderful. <laughs> so he, he puts her down. We get the fuel out, fill that machine up. He takes off. In the meantime, he kind of points. He goes, I remember that one over top of those two mountain ranges over there. I could definitely land that one and take off with you. Perfect. So I got a camera, a pair of binoculars, and a knife on my hip, and a couple of chocolate bars. And two days later, I ended up at that airstrip and he landed and picked me up. So, I mean, the learning curve was steep. Uh, how long did it take uh, for, as far as Nahaney goes, for you guys to get where you felt like you had a decent handle on it? Uh, 
you know, the first year we had a lot of kinks. The second year we started changing a bunch of things from the way the previous guy had run it because it just didn't make sense to us. And I would say by year three, we were starting to get a pretty good handle on what we, the way we wanted to run it. And by year four, it was a matter of changing the major things that would help us, you know, make more money and be more successful in the business. So I'd say solid four years to really feel like, okay, we, I think we know what we're doing here now. But I think any business is like that. You know, it's going to take you two, three years to get all the kinks worked out of it. Oh, yeah. How, and now, how long have you owned Nahani? Uh, I think we're going into year 26 or 27 now. And, I and, haven't even thought about that. I guess I was 23, 48. So, um, yeah, going to year 26. The province brought, bought, or, or however that, whatever it's called, I guess it'd be the province, whatever, uh, bought No, back. the federal government, bought, they bought a big portion of it for the, and turned it into a park. But then we ended up buying an area that was north of there, outside the park boundaries. So we still retained about 35% of our previous guiding territory and then bought a new guiding territory too. So we actually own two up there now. Yeah, and that's the one I went to was the new one with you. And Clay come, came in the, the, the guide shack one day. He's like, hey, do you want to go on an adventure, laddie? I'm like, sure. What, what are we doing? Well, you got to go to this one thing and load up Argos and drive it all over Hell's Half Acre and then go to this other spot and build a shack. And I'm like... <laughs> yeah, fuck it. Yeah, he's like, you know how to use that GPS thing? Remember, it was the he said you that watch you've got. You can go off a grid yeah. coordinate, and uh, the pilot had given you where he had dropped it off. I plugged it in on my Garmin four hundred one, and then we took two Argos. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, I tell you what, <laughs> we heard a bunch of willows <laughs> digging around everywhere until we found that thing. Well, there was a huge argument of who had the power saw. Cause, uh, yeah. I blamed it on you and, uh, you blamed it on me. And I'm like, well, if I had it, you would have run it over. So they then hit, remember Tyson muscle, they sent Tyson out and this dude is cock strong and, but he's got respect tattooed across his neck. Right. So <laughs> immediately when he got out of the plane, when I saw him, I was like, does that say reject? And uh, he, <laughs> he's a good, good dude. Um, I mean, I got along well with Tyson crazy as hell. But man, that dude was cock strong. Remember when we were building that platform? He picked we're, up that log. He picked up the log with one arm. We were telling him, hey, we got to shift the floor over. He just picked it up, moved it over. We kind of looked at each other and went, all right, that worked good. Oh, yeah. But th- those were, uh, that was pretty smart. Uh, did you, fi- who figured that out as far as those those shacks that you guys were building? Those things were, were handy. Well, don't you remember? We that Jim had ordered them in. So we picked them oh, all up. We had up to pick them, them up. There, and we, we had to learn. We had remember we, we didn't even have blueprints. All we had was that little tiny birdhouse. <laughs> <laughs> we had to build it. They gave us that birdhouse that looked like what these shots are supposed to look like. But yeah, like the Zoolander. A whole bunch of other parts in it, school. and I was like, nothing in this birdhouse looks like nothing in this pile. So remember, we were gonna just fly a few parts of it in so we could start building one cabin, and then. We ended up having to fly everything in so we could sort it all because we didn't, we didn't oh, know. Oh, yeah, what I remember now. It fucking took forever. No, oh, the first one did. After that, we actually got pretty good. Yeah. So. I remember. That's when. Uh, if you remember, we had to spread the cock all the time. Uh, and <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard so many cock jokes in my whole life. We were uh, talking them, Gavin. And everybody, oh, you're a pretty good cocker there. Man, you really know how to use your cock. Oh, well. <laughs> just didn't quit. I told, I think I told you, I said, hey, man, I'll cock everything. And you were like, why? And I'm like, I'm good with the cock, man. Don't worry. Cause I'd been a commercial glass. I can run a cocking gun. Like a, I got a PhD. I was doing <laughs> it with, the truth. <laughs> you can really run that cock. <laughs> I was caught. And Clay was, you were like, 
are you doing that one armed? I'm like, man, I'm ambidextrous. Ambidextrous. I can cock with either arm. And then, <laughs> but most. Yeah, takes, Ryan Harder give you the title of master cocker. <laughs> yeah, that's what it was. Yeah, cockmeister, I think is what he kept calling me or something like that. But those things work. They work pretty damn good. I mean, do they hold up winter you pretty well? You know what? Well? Those first ones we built, as long as we put that piece in the middle like we did. Remember we built those little. Uh, Oh yeah, we put a center. A log there that we just jammed them up in the center there. Yep. We put those in every one of them. I think I've got seven or eight of them sitting there now, and never a problem. And I mean, grizzlies hit those things. They shove them, move them, bite them, scratch them, anything they can do. And we put this uh, uh, metal over top of the windows and just drill it in right into that side of that. I'll tell you, those things are incredible. They they're quick to build. We've got them down now. We can build from from nothing sitting there to completely erected with the paint on the floor, windows in and everything walking away in about six hours. So they're a pretty handy unit to end up um, having up there. There's no doubt about it. So I've been really impressed with them and they take the snow load. I mean, they're warm in there. They're, they're just a really good using cabin that you can put up quick. And then the thing I like the best about them is if somebody doesn't like it or they come in and say, Hey, I don't like where your cabin is. You can literally pull them things apart in two hours and go put it up. And one day you can pull it down and put it back up again. So it definitely, definitely helps out. No, that's cool. There's too many rabbit holes to run down here. You work down in, in Mexico a bunch too as well on um, the Baja, and you used to work on Tiburon some. You do that every year now though, don't you? Yeah, I've been down there about 17 years now. I've hunted all over Mexico from the central Baja, um, a place called the Biosphere, all the way down the Baja. I've been Tiburon Island. Um, I've been all over the, the Syria Indian mainland all the ranches down around Sonora, all the way up the northern part there by Caborca. I mean, I've hunted a lot of different places in Mexico, and it's uh, extremely, extremely rewarding. Great place, awesome people. Like I've, the Mexican people that I've been around, the ranch owners, the hands, I mean, they're always happy. They're always outgoing, and, uh, I, you know, we've had a ton of fun down there over the years. I plan on still staying down there. I just can't help myself. It's you know, go work in the oil patch in the wintertime freezing or go to Mexico and, and go hunting with guys. And it just seems to win out every time. Yeah. And I, I, I've only, I've only been down there a little bit, but it, it, well, I ate enough seafood at that place on Kino Bay to kill four people. <laughs> Jesus, that was good. Um, I think we ordered two or three and then we ordered another one. And I kept looking at you going like, Aaron, we will eat again on the Island. But <laughs> it isn't like you got to fill yourself up and you're going to starve for the next week. Uh, you can't look at me, but it's just so good. Yes, that I don't think people realize how much I eat. It's 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 a lot. Um, to a point when I went to uh, I got on uh, testosterone replacement therapy, and when they did my my uh, what do they call it? Um, That's hard to believe with a master cocker. I know, right? Um, <laughs> what can I say? I'm getting old. The my basal metabolic rate. They tested it three times because they didn't think I was burning that many calories. And I kept telling the ladies, Jessica, I said, kept telling her, I was like, look, I eat a lot and I don't gain weight. She's like, how much do you eat? And I'm like, more than you can imagine is how much I, I eat a, a lot. And obviously you see, you've seen it firsthand several times. The problem is when it's really good, Jesus, I'll eat so much. I thought I was going to puke taking that pango across the ocean. Cause it, <laughs> <laughs> and I don't get seasick. Like, holy shit. Uh, Do you remember when we come back across that thing and it started to get dark on us and the waves that we were in? Oh, I yeah. Was like, this can't be safe. Like, this is a fiberglass boat, and what we're doing here makes no sense. We were getting pounded. 
I couldn't even sit on the seat because I was sitting ahead of you guys, and it was like I was getting spanked. And I finally remember I grabbed that bow line and just stood up on the bow. And I oh, just yeah, started hollering. Those guys thought I was completely insane. I was like, this is the only way I can get across this thing, at least flex with my knees. Otherwise, I'm sitting on this, this board getting absolutely spanked. I was putting my back out and hitting so hard. I was thinking we were going to lose about 30 grand in optics and camera gear and weapons. It was, yeah. Have you guys had one flip? The faster that guy went, I think he thought he could skip across the top of the waves, but that really wasn't working real well. No, I, yeah, it was bad about compress your, your spine. Um, have you guys flipped one of them over before going over there? Um, I've never heard anybody even flipping one of them boats so far. They, they're pretty well built and, I've heard of them cracking, guys making it back and having to fiberglass them again, but nobody's ever flipped one. Although, to get the the trucks over to Tiburon, people don't realize this. But I saw this firsthand. Two, <laughs> <laughs> two of these boats together, you put planks across it, you put a little kind of a plywood top on it, and then you drive the, the truck up onto it, and then you go across on these boats. And these are not big boats, but they float quite well. And you put these trucks on, and away you go. You drive across, get to the other side, and drive them off. And people think that there's no way you did that, but there's lots of pictures out there, and I can tell you firsthand that that's how you get your vehicles over to Tibber on and back. It's it's quite the experience. Oh, I watched. I was like, you got to be shitting me. And they pulled, I think it was a Ford Bronco <laughs> or an F-150 on top, and I'm yeah. like, they're going to drive that cross? He's like, well, how the hell do you think they get there? I'm like, yeah, you, you got a point. <laughs> I didn't really ever think of that. And, yeah, they take that. They're very... The Hispanic culture is very resourceful. They'll figure it out one way they or another. They will figure out a way to do things. And one thing that I've learned down there, I mean, we get spoiled. We don't have something, you know, we'll run to the local store and pick it up and, you know, come back. Now we have the right part. I mean, down there, I've been in a lot of those ranches, and it's very similar to being in a hunting camp where you have nothing. And, you know, the one thing you got to have is uh, haywire. Another thing you got to have is duct tape and a little bit of ingenuity. And it's amazing the stuff they fix and what they get by with. I, I hunted overseas in Russia, and I found they were the same way when you get out in those out camps. Yeah. I mean, you just fix anything with anything that was available. So I, I worry that in a lot of parts of North America, we're just losing that. We don't have that anymore. We just throw everything away and replace it, and it's it's pretty unfortunate. Oh, yeah. yeah there's In other countries, we, we, mean, we throw away what other people kill to have, and that's... That's oh, no yeah. shit. I remember pulling nails out of one of those cabins. You're like, hey, save them fucking nails. Those are a commodity. <laughs> and I was out there straightening well, nails. Remember we were straightening them out, and you're like, what, what are we straightening this out for? And then we went to build that rack of that uh, for drying all those salt capes, and we didn't have any more nails. And I'm like, hey, Aaron, where's that bucket of them old rusted nails? So we went and grabbed it, and we finished building off that rack with those old rusted nails. These are the times where I, I look back and laugh because the one time – I'm like, uh, why do you want me to save these nails? And you're like, do you see a fucking hardware store around here, dummy? I'm like, <laughs> yeah, you got a point. There is, <laughs> what is it, probably, what, an hour and a half flight and a 14-hour drive to the nearest hardware store? Oh, yeah. it's Depending how good that road is, it's 12 to 14 hours to get you to the hardware store. So that's the drive part, and it takes you a good hour to get out there. So you don't you don't throw anything away. I mean, nothing. we got to little shack that we built that's right full of odd knickknacks and pieces of metal and everything and you think what the heck do you need that for and i can't tell you how many times we've used it to you know fix a quad or an argo or you know build something that needed to be done we were installing a last year installing a a new uh, satellite system for a phone and camp and we got to a part on it that it wasn't working because this piece of metal had actually was cracked and broken 
and it wouldn't hold properly to hold the whole stand. And we literally took a hunk of metal we had, drilled it all out, pounded it out to get it straight to start with, put that on there, screwed it over the top of it, and this high-performance, you know, high-end satellite phone was all of a sudden working because we kept a small chunk of metal. I mean, that's that's the way it goes up there. When you're raised without money, it's not as big of a deal than when you were raised with money or, or when you're, you know, ra- like, well, for example... Not many people probably know how to sharpen a chainsaw, but, you know, I was raised in a logging yeah. community or, or even operate a chainsaw. And, yeah, firewood, especially at the rate I burn firewood, um, that's like a pastime up there because uh, that's the only heat source you got is fire. <laughs> it's the stove. You remember when, you, there's a, uh, when Patrick caught his freaking hands on fire? Because th- th- this kid was cock strong, oh. but he just didn't know how to say, I don't know. Well, he he yeah. never operated a a lantern so he turned it on full rip and it took 15 minutes to light it we weren't paying attention we looked over and he looked like ghost rider both of his hands were on fire and <laughs> he almost caught his hair on fire because he didn't know where to pat his hands out so he was hitting his shoulders with it <laughs> he just caught his hair on fire too oh yeah, yeah. It, it was uh interesting he's the same guy that Believe it or not, bent the steering column on a four-wheeler. Remember that? Yeah, because he pushed the whole thing out of a, a completely out of a swamp. I mean, Strong's an understatement for that guy. Oh, he's yeah. like an incredible Hulk. Yeah, that kid is super, super strong. But, uh, but yeah, and then Harder. That's when I met first met Harder, and actually Harder was with me uh, when I shot one of my mule deer in Alberta. But you guys hunt all over the place together now, don't you? Yeah, we do lots of hunting. I mean. Everybody always says when Ryan are around each other, they're like, you guys are like an old married couple. But the funny thing about it is, I mean, we spend months and months and months around each other every year. Never a harsh word, never a bad word. I mean, we talk everything over and just go for it. I mean, if we're hunting sheep or caribou or whatever we're after, you know, it's just, you kind of feed off each other. And it's like, hey, you got this? Yeah, okay, I'm going to go down here. I'll hand signal from this place over here. Our signals are so good now that, We'll be doing something, and the guy standing with us, what is he even saying? Oh, I got it. Let's just go. we got to go around here 15 yards. we got to go up, and he's about 80 yards over there. And they're like, how did you get that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've been around each other too much. So. Uh, anyway. Yeah, no kidding. So what? Uh, what's this with everything going on in a crazy world today? What's it look like for your fall season? Well, I, I always remain eternally optimistic all the time not one of these guys that wants to be down about things. I just don't think it's worth it. Um, and right now, I mean, they got letters out the NWT government saying nobody can come in there and stuff, but we're already starting to make some plans on how we could actually get in there without going through the communities, without going anywhere near any of the, the villages or the towns in the Northwest territories and to avoid everything and go direct in. And then we got a place that's a, an airport that we could actually land a really big airplane that's a long ways away from everything. And, you know, we're trying to put in a contingency plan of landing there and then picking our clients up and flying them from there directly in with a float plane. So, I mean, we, we got some options out there. I, I really think it's going to be going. July's a long ways away right now. And I'd be really surprised if we're not operating by the time we hit July. So there, there's my vote. If you put a gun to my head, I'm going to say, yeah, we'll be operating. We might have to be creative, but we'll be operating. Oh, gotcha. Well, no, that'll be, that'll be good. And, uh, how how many hunters uh, are you guys bringing in? Well, what's the amount of, what, what average, like, uh, rewind here. You guys are doing doll sheep, uh, caribou, and moose. Um, what are you guys bringing into the NWT? And and, oh, and goat? Well, there you go. Yeah, we're the only ones that hunt goat anymore, I think. 
Oh, gotcha. What are you guys bringing in for hunters for uh, for the different areas on average for each species? You know, I I couldn't even estimate that at times, Aaron, because we, you know, we've got that. We've got a bunch of areas in British Columbia. We've got the places that we're hunting in Mexico, and I mean, it can change year to year. But uh, we're definitely dealing with a lot of guys. If you look at the whole family and the structure and the amount of businesses we're dealing with, we're we're definitely dealing with a lot of clients out there. But I think the big difference we have over a lot of different people is we're, we're hands-on. You know, we're not, we don't have a bunch of different guys running things for us. We're doing all of it ourselves. And a lot of times we're doing a lot of the guiding. And I think that makes, to me, it, it's a big difference. We're, we're still one-on-one out there getting as much of it done as we can ourselves. And there's some parts, you know, we get to Nehemi where we got to dish off and we have our, our really good crew that's been with us for years. And, you know, they do a bunch of the guiding. And we're, a lot of times we're, we're sending guys out and getting them back in and coming up with the plans. But in the meantime, you know, we do get out there every year. We get some hunts in and, and uh, try to try to get out there and take people out. So if we can keep maintaining that, if I get to the point I can't guide anymore, then I'm probably going to go do something different. Yeah, well, I will say for a short man, you're, uh, you, you move like uh, you can tell you were raised in the mountains. You will surprise people. And I've had multiple people tell me that, like, you know, for a short little leg fucker, he can move, can he? And I'm like, yeah, he'll, he will surprise you. He can move in the mountains. But when you've done it, I since don't know birth, if I move quite like I used to. Every year that they seem to be getting a little bit higher. But when you do this all the time, I mean, I'm nine, ten months of the year I'm out there, so I I should be able to get things done. I remember you telling me all about how to watch diet and how to do this and that, and I'm like, I've been fat my whole life, so I'm just gonna go <laughs> eat what I want, do what I want. Oh shit, so, that's funny. Yeah, it works as long as you can pack it and get from A to B. That's all that matters. Everybody's all worried all the time about being in a super, super shape. The good thing I like about hunting is you can be in phenomenal shape. It's going to make your hunt easier. No two ways about it. Or you can be a 350-pound guy that just has a will to get it done. And you can do it too, and you're going to have a great time. So it's it's the one sport out there that is really, it's your mind, far more than it's your ability. I've had guys that are, you know, built like you are that run over top of the hills, and I've had other guys built like you are that <laughs> after half a day they're like i'm done i'm cooked i can't do it no more so when guys come and hunt with me i never judge them by their physical appearance i always judge them by you know mentally the guy starts telling you what he's done for a living and i started out with nothing i run a construction crew and i do this and i'm in the, on the job every day i don't even panic i know that guy is going to be with me every step of the way you know you get other guys that are like hey you know i'm joe so-and-so and i do this and run some fancy i don't know stock brokerage thing but i work out once a day and i I golf three times a week odds are he might look really good but he's not going to keep up that's just the way it is so i don't worry so much about what a guy looks like i worry more about can you get it done or not get her done and you know are you mentally tough that's the big key behind it all oh yeah yeah and uh it it is uh when it's mentally not just you know what it's real similar to Aaron. it's really similar to telling a guy not to pack a 67, 68 inch moose with the whole nose on it from where you're at <laughs> to where you're going to. And that guy is mentally tough enough that he goes, fuck you. I'm going to do it anyhow. Cause you're not going to be right. And the look on that guy's face when he gets halfway going, Holy fuck, this is heavy. <laughs> but you know, mentally just sitting there and saying, I'm going to do it. And at that point you're committed. Like you can't quit then. And every time I look at you smiling, and you give me that fuck you, I'm doing this. And you did it. And I'm real happy about that. <laughs> Man, I don't you know. sure didn't want to admit I was right. <laughs> oh fuck. I don't know what that thing weighed. Uh 
That would be pushing 250 or something, I would think. I don't. What do you think that thing weighs? <laughs> They're heavy, really heavy. I don't ever have a scale around, but I'm smart enough to know <laughs> I don't want to pack them. You guys get them out and cut it off. I believe we good pictures. I can do it. Okay, do it then. <laughs> people, people are like, uh, you know, like, why the hell didn't you skin it out? And I'm like, well, there, and it made a cool photo. I, I said, ah, it's not that far. I can make it. And at that point, I had committed, and I couldn't stop in the middle of it. So, <laughs> the fucker was heavy. I remember that. It was a cool photo, though. And a good guy, a good guy would have been a good friend, and would have went, you know, okay, you made a point, you did it. Let's just skin this thing out. <laughs> but oh no, <laughs> you committed. I was like. Oh, every time I look, you're gonna finish this. You started it. You're gonna finish it. We ain't stopping now. Uh, so. man, there was something else stupid I did. Oh, I strapped that dude's entire sheet to get better photos to the pack. Uh, you weren't there. It was me and Harder. Harder's like, you think you can pack this thing? And I'm like, yeah, just strapped to the pack. So we just strapped the whole body of the sheep to the to the pack, which was it. I tell you what, that was nothing compared to that moose head. That. Whatever that ram weighed, probably. Oh, that moose is way heavier. Uh, way heavier. Jesus, that ram was probably, I don't know, two, two twenty, maybe got it out. It's whatever, loses forty pounds. Or anyway, that literally was like carrying a fork. That moose, I stood up and I'm like, huh. I think I might have bit off more than I could chew. Jesus <laughs> Christ. <laughs> probably took ten years off my knees. They're heavy, there's no doubt about it. You fell with one on your and it stuck you, t- you it. Both sides of it rammed your face into the ground, didn't it? And you couldn't get it from underneath. Oh it? yeah, I I picked. Actually, I had a quarter on, then I picked the head and cape up, and that's why I knew that it was a dumb move. But I didn't have far to go. I only had about seven hundred yards to go. But I loaded up, and other guys were loading up behind me, and I went down the hill. And of course, I tried to take a shortcut, and when I went to take the shortcut, I went through a bunch of willows, and it, it was the horns were kind of hanging up, so I gave it kind of a hard right twist. And broke through the willows, but when you have momentum from a large object, it tends to not want to stop. So it took me right off balance, spun me sideways, and then planted me face first right down in the mud. And I, when I had all that weight on my back, I had my arms up around the horns, hanging onto the the front. But when it drove in, it drove right to the point that my arms were pinned up over my head, and I was kicking like a little baby with a face plant. And I could only get my face out of the mud. Enough for one nostril to kind of breathe through my nostril. <laughs> then I had to wait for them guys to come down. They walked past me at 20 yards. I'm trying to holler with a mouthful of mud. They finally come walking back over to find me, and I look like a turtle stuck. And I'm kicking my feet and everything, getting mad at them, and they're laughing so hard that they can't help me out. Then I'm getting madder, and I got one nostril just kind of blowing air. <laughs> and they finally picked that thing off me, and that's my name. Don't do that no more. Those things are too heavy, but, you know. That was my experience speaking, but I had to learn the wrong way. I actually that had the same thing happen with Devin when I shot my moose up there with with Lander. I uh, oh, I, yeah? I face planted, but thank God I was in a position before anybody saw. Devin caught the tail end of me getting out from under it. Same thing, straight into the snow, and I just was like, oh man! And I had a little bit of freedom of movement with my arms, and I'm trying to get and same kind of thing. I had that head cape and a quarter. And I was like, okay, I can't let him see. And it was like two feet of snow, so I was buried. And Devin caught the tail end of it where just my face and whole body was covered in snow. And he's like, so did you fall? I'm like, yeah, dude, I fell. Right? <laughs> so Devin's dad is Wiener, and I thought it was because his fingers were size of Wieners, but Devin told me it's because <laughs> when he was working in the oil field, he just grabbed like a six or eight pack of Wieners and eat them all day. 
which is how he got the name yeah. Wiener. <laughs> well, they, they started him out when he was doing that. They called him Dweener for his real name is Dwayne. So it was Dwayne and Wiener, but then he kept eating them. So then it was Dweener or Wiener after that. It, it stuck. I think he was 18 or 19 when he got that. And he's the same age as me, a couple of weeks younger than I am. And to this day, he's Wiener. He's had that name for 30 years now. And I don't think it's going away. <laughs> how big is Wiener? He's a big boy. Oh, Wiener's big. He's got to be 6'2", 270, 280. He's a big dude, that's for sure. Yeah, so that's the kid. Wiener's kid was with me uh, when I shot that moose in BC. And I think that was I think that was uh, Devin's first, uh, I think that was his first moose he's guided, I think. Um, no, no, he guided a few because he'd been up with me before that. He'd guided three or four on his own before that. A couple of archery ones, actually. Maybe that was what he was worried about was that it was me and I about shot a dishpan moose because I was ready to get the hell out of there and was tired of the rain. And I said, yeah. Devin, if that thing crosses the river, I'm going to kill it. And he was like, Clay will never let me hear the end of it if you shoot that. And I'm like, <laughs> dude, I want to get the fuck out of here. This sucks. And <laughs> we ended up shooting. I always say you, you shoot one of them in a lake or a swamp or a river and you won't shoot another one. Yeah. <laughs> it, that's the worst thing there is to deal with. Oh, I saw a video of you. You videoed a guy shot, a shot <laughs> one and you were talking to the moose. Come on, give her, buddy. You can make it because he shot it. <laughs> Right in the middle of the river. It, well, he shot it on the shore, then it ran back in the water, and he shot it again. Then it was trying to get out, and he went to shoot again. I started hollering at him not to shoot no more. And you can actually hear me in the video. I'm going, come on, Moose. Power it up, Moose. You can do it, Moose. Give her, Moose. <laughs> he made and it. And the worst part about it is he finally he got up on the shore, and right when it was time to shoot again, and all you hear in the video is click. <laughs> I holler at him. I said, grab another shell off your strap. Hurry up. And that moose got about 20 yards, and you can kind of see him through the trees, and finally he sunk a good shot in there and tipped him over. And he, he looks at me, and he says, man, you were swearing so much, I thought you had Tourette's or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. Well, I can imagine when one goes down in that river, it's an all-day, really cold job. Oh, it's terrible. I mean, especially when you kill them late September, early October, you honestly, you have to get in there if you're waist-deep or something, or you get them drugged as far as you can get them on the shore it'll take a month after you're done before your knees start feeling normal again. Like it is, it's really cold water and it's pretty hard on a person to, to skin them in there. So I always say you got to find a way to get them out of there, but it's not like a white tailed deer. where You just grab a hold of the horns and pull them up out of the water. I mean, they're, they're a little bit of a dead weight sitting there. Good Lord. I, I, me- I remember my first time. Well, when I was judging them, I kept under judging them because uh, Shiras is their heads just not as big. And then, we killed that one, and I got up to it, and I was like, sweet baby Jesus, this thing is way bigger than a Shiras. It's hard to comprehend how big those bodies you know, those they are. You know, they are, because try to explain it to people. It's, it's, the horn configuration stuff can look a lot the same, you know, and, and to body size, it looks the same. And guys like, oh, I don't know if it's that big or if it's this. But trying to explain to them that you're not shooting an animal that's 1,200 pounds, you're shooting an animal that's 2,000-plus pounds. And... You know, to walk up to it, it's like, look at the size. I mean, it's like a really big horse laying on the ground, and it's got a horns on top of it, and now you got to move that whole thing around. And I've seen them at times where, you know, you want to take a picture of them, and they, they get wedged up in some trees or whatever. You can't move them. You can't. The picture's got to take happen right there, or you cut half of it off and then whistle it around somehow so you can get pictures. But you can't move that whole thing on its own. There's just no way you can. There was some dude, I think you might even have stuck up for me, this thing died in a willow thicket, so we 
with to take photos, we sat at the back of it because you couldn't sit anywhere else. And the guy's yeah. like, oh, way to get way back on it. And I'm like, look, you dumb motherfucker. Where, there was nowhere else to sit other yeah. than on top of the body, which is not very professional. And I'm like, no, I won't take that shot. I don't like that picture. Yeah. I'm like, it died. It mushed the willows down. That's the area we had to sit. So we sat right at its ass where the willows were down. But I don't think, well, one, you don't need a whole lot of trick photography to make a 68 inch wide moose look very big. It's just big. But I don't think people understand how big those things, you know, are. And when you talk about 68 inches, you see that thing walking through the willows. It's just, it's prehistoric looking. And you guys. Well, people though, I've, I've measured a bunch of them on the, on a hoof when you measure up the side, you know, and a common one's going to go anywhere from seven, four to seven, 10 at the shoulders. That's how tall the top of the shoulders are. Now when they pick their head up, you got a head that goes up over top of that. And then you got horns that go up over top of that. So I mean, that animal can be standing there and perspective wise, just think that those horns are going to be sitting somewhere up the top of a backboard above the rim and people are sitting there going that's not possible but that's literally how big they can be when they're standing there and when you get up to them and i always just love the look of a person's face when that mass of moose is laying there and they're like what are we going to do with this (laughs) it's an eyeful to even think about what you can do with it remember that one we went and helped patrick kill right after that we ripped up well we killed it and then those guys were supposed to we left everything laying out there for them. Then we took off, we gutted it and stuff. And they were supposed to just take the shoulders off. We had to show back up the next day to go take the shoulders off because they couldn't get it moved. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Big. And you guys, you kill some, probably some of the largest mountain caribou anywhere uh, as well. I, I, I was, I mean, you guys are killing 400 inches every year. Yeah. We kill a lot of really big caribou. I mean, that area up there, I, I think it's just cause it's so untouched and there's so few people. Um, and the mountain caribou are not like the other caribou. You don't have these massive, massive herds moving through. I mean, they're, they're herds of 15, 20, 25. But the neat thing about them is they're a lot like elk hunting. If you see a caribou one place one year, you can go back the same time the next year. You stand a pretty good chance of seeing that same bull in that same area. That's how they kind of hold to it. So you got to be careful. You don't want to take too many out of one spot because you want them bulls to keep using them spots and keep having those younger ones growing up there. But if you hunt properly and smart up there, you can kill some really good bulls. And again, you know, being in shape definitely helps your maneuverability and ability to get around. But even a guy that doesn't get around that well, there's just enough of them around that you're going to bump in. You're going to kill yourself a good bull. And with caribou, I always say, shoot the one you like. Don't worry about score or anything because there's so many measurements on them. Shoot a bull you like. Who cares what it scores? Just I've seen some unbelievable bulls that didn't score worth a damn. And they're still phenomenal, phenomenal caribou. And that, that's what I prefer doing. Shoot exactly what you like. Don't worry about the score on them. Yeah, definitely. Well, man, we're at an hour, and I told you I wouldn't keep you on any longer than that, so I should probably quit talking your leg <laughs> off. But we're—I definitely can tell you—we're gonna. I'm gonna get a lot of messages. To you're gonna have to do this again because I'm gonna get pestered to death to get you on and tell more, more stories. But I—I uh, I cannot thank you enough for the friendship and opportunities and and all the uh, sound advice that I generally don't listen to. Um, you're a hell of a guy. I appreciate everything. <laughs> Well, it's likewise. For a guy that we weren't supposed to get along with, it's been an awesome trip so far, and I know we got a lot more fires on the mountainside to spend yet. So thanks for giving me a call. I'm probably going to go butcher chickens now and, and uh, do something productive. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> oh, shit. All right, sounds good, Clay. I appreciate everything. Take it easy. All right, take care, Mike.